You know, a lot of people say baby boomers have a self-entitled arrogance that comes from enjoying a lifetime of privilege. Now, as the youngest of my siblings and the only one to fall outside this generational classification, I can certainly see their point. But I also have to say in their defence, the one thing the boomers never enjoyed was the privilege of parents who showed anything more than a cursory interest in their survival. I guess having made it through the war years, these people were desensitised to life's gentler proclivities and were bereft of any nurturing instincts beyond keeping their young offspring merely fed and watered. Even my eldest boomer, Michael, the golden child in my parents' eyes, occasionally found himself abandoned in the trenches. Like the time he climbed over the back fence to retrieve a stray cricket ball, only to be shot at by Mrs Brennan, our next-door neighbour, who had fired her rifle at the ten-year-old boy through her bathroom louvers. Now, the fact that our parents didn't have this woman incarcerated, or at the very least institutionalised for this ambush, was testimony to their post-war parenting motto of whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So I was immediately drawn to David's story about his parents' laissez-faire model of child-rearing, and in particular, the emotional amputee that was his father. Welcome to my fucked up family. David, welcome to my fucked up family. <laughs> welcome to mine. <laughs> indeed, indeed. In fact, you're welcome to it. <laughs> Do you want it? It's going cheap. <laughs> now, look over the past over the past uh, little while. I've I've had a lot of uh, people come on and talk about their mothers. Uh, there seems to be a lot of mother issues out there. Um, but yeah. uh, I'm particularly interested today to hear about your father, who sounds like quite a colourful kind of a character. So why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about your dad? Well, um, and by the way, for the record, I've got plenty to say about my mum, but let's stick to my dad. <laughs> That's another episode. Yeah, a whole episode. Um, so my dad, uh, born in Montreal, Mm -hmm. uh, born into a wealthy family. His grandfather, my great-grandfather, immigrated to Canada uh, from Sparta in Greece, where he'd been the son of a, a probably quite a violent person, I think. Um, he was a, he was a uh, blacksmith. And um, I think he was quite violent because my great-grandfather had to escape. And he escaped, and he, he started in New York, and didn't particularly like New York, so he went north to Montreal, a lovely city during the summer, and then that thing that we call the winter happens in Montreal. Having lived there for a couple of years myself, you know, it's the only time I've ever had my eyeballs feel cold. Um, and he got himself a vegetable barrow, and then several vegetable barrows, and then with the money he made from those vegetable barrows, he bought an ice cream parlour. And one day, somebody walked into that ice cream parlour with this machine, and he said, if you hang a sheet on the wall at the end of the ice cream parlour, you can show these moving pictures, and people will come in and buy more ice cream. And so my great-grandfather ended up owning 40 cinemas in the days of when they really were movie palaces. Yeah, you know, right. They were built in the style of the Alhambra and the pyramids. And, I mean, and of course, being North America... Um, all but two of them have been bulldozed, and I think the others have been gutted, um, which is really sad because they were quite amazing. Anyway, so there was a considerable fortune made, and Dad grew up in a degree of privilege. Hmm. Um, 
but his mother was a very difficult individual. Um, my grandmother, um, who was an alcoholic, very talented, very bright, very twisted, you know, a bit spoilt, and um, made my father's life very difficult. Uh, he, she was sort of this stern disciplinarian who had no self-discipline, but, you know, she's kind of mean to him, and he was an only child. Oh, right, okay. Yep. And so he grew up, I mean, he went to, went to the same high school as William Shatner, which was pretty fantastic, because... <sighs> As a oh. child, I was watching Star Trek, absolutely glued to it, and William Shatner, Captain Kirk, was giving it his all, and my dad's only comment was, oh, Billy, 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 as <laughs> he walked past. So hang on, so hang on, now, stop right there. So he yeah. not only went to the same school, he was there at the same time as William Shatner. Yeah. That's yeah. so amazing. I didn't yeah. even realise that William Shatner was Canadian. Oh, absolutely, he grew up in Montreal. I mean, my dad also, my dad's best friend growing up, um, was a uh, bloke called David Cohen, and his first cousin was Leonard Cohen. So they, it's kind of a fun place to grow up, I think, Montreal. Right, it's pretty, right. It's a lovely city. Um, it kind of feels a bit European in its own way, um, very French, you know. Anyway, it was a great place for him to grow up, and uh, he didn't really talk about his childhood much because he was so – he had a very messed-up relationship with his mum to the point where in the 1950s he – uh, through his family connection, got himself a job with a rank organisation that, you know, every British film used to have a man banging yeah. a gong in front of it. Well, so that, so Dad got a job working for them and he, he nicked off to England to get away from his mum, essentially. Right. So at that point, uh, the family still owned quite a, an extensive oh, yeah. chain of huge, cinemas? Yeah, huge, right. Huge, yeah. And, I mean, my, I, I never met my great-grandfather because he died in the... 50s but but he um he was hit by a cement truck actually um and uh which was about what it would have taken to kill him uh, the, the the whole family everybody used to refer to him as the boss not george sanatakos the boss um he was tough as old boots yeah so uh dad moved to england and um he had this great adventure of working for the rank organization in the publicity department. So he met all the movie stars right. of the 1950s and 60s. And <gasps> I, wow. So I said, Dad, you know, what was it like? He said, what do you think? You know, I would, I would sit at the feet of Noel Coward while he held forth and all the famous people in the world would come visit him. You know, um, one day he was escorting Gina Lollabrigida. He was, you know, like mm -hmm. Sophia a massive movie star. He was sort of the handsome young man that was escorting these starlets to various premieres when that was all very much part of the scene. And um, she stepped backwards onto his foot in her stiletto heels and broke his toe. And for years afterwards, she used to send him birthday and Christmas cards, which is really, like, a very nice touch. That's that. awesome. Imagine yeah. having your toe broken by Gina Lollobrigida. Yeah, well, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I would just dine out on that for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, and the thing was, Dad didn't really talk about that part period of his life. I mean, he, the because he left the film industry, um, the last film he worked on was Gigi, um, and then before that, he'd done the publicity with Ben Hur. Oh, and there's a great story about him working on publicity in Psycho. <gasps> for some reason, for many years. Um, American movies were released in France before they were released in England. It went on for years and years and years. And so Psycho was first released, which was, you know, at that time, the most frightening film ever made. Mm. And Dad 
had Tony Perkins, the guy that plays the nutter in it, with him in Paris, and they they waited outside the cinema after the first showing on the Champs-Élysées. And there's a look that the psychopath gives at the end of that movie, which completely chills you to mm, the bone. Mm. Anyway, Dad got Tony Perkins to do that look when people emerged from the cinema, <laughs> and 14 people fainted. <laughs> Which is a great PR stunt. So Dad was really good at his job. When he got, he said that you know they were chronically underpaid in the PR department. So he left and went into advertising. And I watched all of the episodes of Mad Men. Yeah. And I just was watching basically my father's life. I mean, his happened in London, but it was very marked. That's what it was like. It was you know sex, alcohol, smoking, people being funny and clever and, uh, you know, thinking they were changing the world in some kind of, you know, some way. And, and so he was, the, he was the Don Draper, was he? Yeah, he was pretty much the Don Draper. I mean, to the, you know, very kind of bent out of shape individual. Very funny, very good looking. Um, I mean, to give you an example, my, my parents split up when I was very young, but in there, when they got together their, in their heyday, they were this almost a golden couple in London, fantastic entertainers, both of them amazing cooks. And, and uh, they also had a great sense of humour. Um, David Cohen, Leonard's cousin, was coming on to London on business. And um, they, they knew who was staying at the Dorchester Hotel. So when he arrived from the airport in his taxi... My parents were picketing the hotel with signs saying, Yankee, go home. <laughs> and down with the B'nai B'rith, which is a famous Jewish charity. <laughs> they'd made placards and everything. Um, so they were, they were funny people. Yeah. And, and they were both very, very bright um, and both alcoholic. So, so just to give us some perspective then, what was your mum's background? How did they meet? Um, she was a photographer, right? And um, her great one of the great loves of her life uh, had been the man that taught her. And uh, shortly after her partner had been killed in a hit and run accident, and it was literally days after the inquest into that his death, that my father was booked in to have her portrait, his portraits taken by right, him. right. And so they're very much a rebound, rebound relationship, yeah, I think. and. Yeah, and they got together quite quickly. I mean, kind of ironically, my father had moved thousands of miles to get away from his mother, but my mother and she were so alike. <laughs> Talented, beautiful, alcoholic, lunatic. Do you think he was aware of that? Uh, no, I'm not sure. I don't know how self-aware my father ever was about right. anything. Cause right, it, I tried very hard to engage with him on a deeper level about things. And I remember writing to him, you know, in my 30s about things that had gone on and I got this ridiculous letter back saying yes I, I can see your point I agree with 20 percent uh 35 percent I may find questionable and the, the balance is really you know that 45 percent I thoroughly disagree with he didn't then mention which bit <laughs> so there was a kind of nonsensical letter and, just uh, left you I'm guessing satisfied. just left you guessing yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we agree about that you know so there was never you know, my father was one for 
he loved a bit of bar chat, banter. Mm. He loved all that. I mm. think that's why he loved living in England so much. So, okay, so he's married your mum, and yep. uh, and and so how many how many kids did they end up having? They have two. My sister came as a surprise. Right, younger sister, think, younger sister. Yeah, yeah, she's four years younger than her. Because I think she, they were in trouble by that time. Yeah, and where the breakup happened, my mother got a job to take some photographs for a book in Greece uh, on the island of Mykonos. And Mykonos is very different than the party party island that we think of today. Um, it didn't have an airport. There was only one telephone. Um, so it was a very simple place. And uh, we went there. Uh, you know, I was six. My sister was two. We went there what was supposed to be for three weeks, and my mother just stayed on for about 18 months because she was very successful as a photographer. Some of the most kind of iconic images of the Mykonos windmills, for example, that people first saw were probably taken by my mum. Right. So we went out there, and my father was back in England uh, with his job, and I'm pretty sure he's, he, was, he started an affair. And... Um, yeah, and he came out to visit, and it was not a happy time. Mm, why? I think they both, well, there was a lot of drinking and kind of anger between them. And uh, and essentially, for years, you know, my mother had told, you know, the story that she told um, was that my father left her. But um, as my, my late lamented brother-in-law said, who was Greek, said, Karel, you went to Greece, you did not come back. Who left who? <laughs> um, so, which was kind of a yeah, family sounds... myth blown up. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. She buggered off for three weeks and came back 18 months later, only because her mother was dying. Yeah. So when she buggered off to, to Mykonos, she took yeah. you and your sister? Yeah, but then I got sent back to go to school, and it was some. it was a crappy little state school, and I, you know, we... It was the 60s, so all I remember doing was endless potato printing and drawing and self-expression, which <laughs> bore the crap out of me. Um, uh, you haven't so, made use of those potato printing skills later on? No, weirdly not. No, that's a shame. Um, I, just, I just remember thinking, this is such a waste of potatoes. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, it was a... It, yeah, it was supposed to be a lovely little school and um, it wasn't particularly. And my father spent as little time with me as he possibly could. He was always farming me out to his mother-in-law, my beloved grandmother. I remember one particular day, he got himself all gussied up and he put some aftershave on. And you know that poster from Home Alone where the kid is yelling? Yeah. Aftershave yeah. on. Well, I remember that because my dad put some on me, and I, oh my god, it stinks. <laughs> so when he put clone on me, I thought, wow, we're going out somewhere together. Anyway, we get into a taxi, and he drops me off at my grandmother's again. So he wasn't going to spend any time with me. Mm. And how old uh, were you at this at this point, David? Six, six seven. <gasps> so young. Yeah, yeah, and. Yeah, so, I mean, my grandmother was wonderful. She lived very close to where I, I grew up. Loveliest person. And um, But I remember she came out. She would normally wait for me at the door, and I'd sort of run up the path and go into her flat. Um, on this particular day, she came out and met us on the footpath. And she said, Robert, you're taking advantage. And 
what I heard as a little kid was, mm. oh, she doesn't want you either. Mm. Mm. What I heard as a little boy was I was rejected by everybody. My yeah. mother had sent me away. My dad didn't want me. And now my grandmother, whom I adored and who adored me, um, didn't want me either. So that was a real kick in the guts moment. I can, I could take you to exactly the spot where it happened. Um, Wow, yeah, that's 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 really awful. so powerful, isn't it? That that have ah. that impact on you, that you remember it so yeah. vividly. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You've got to that stage in your life where you're thinking, okay, mum chuffled me off uh, back to school. Mm. Dad's chuffling me off to to grandma. Grandma's mm. seems not all that keen about it. Um, you're misinterpreting it that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, of course, she gets cancer and dies. Oh God. Uh, which was completely, that was the first significant death in my life. Um, and that's brought, what brought my mother back from Greece. Okay, and so that also, brought her home. Mum comes home, parents divorce, life went to ratchet. Mm, mm. And you know, that, all, that in, all in the space, space of 18 months. Yeah, right, okay. Yeah. And then my mother hit the bottle big time. Um She'd like to drink, but I think it really, that's when everything went really. So their their relationship then unravels. Seems, yeah. seems like it took longer than what it probably should have by the sounds of things. Look, you know, they were they were very compatible in some ways. Yeah. They each other laugh. And they were both very well read and, and clever. My father married three times and progressively, um, you know, my stepmother's a lovely woman. She's not a bright, as bright and well read as my mum. And his third wife is... Dumb as a box of rocks. Um, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And also just a casually a bit racist. You know? <laughs> anyway, yeah. I mean, I, I... Isn't it funny, though? Like, relationships are so weird, aren't they? Because you think... You, you talk about how, in so many ways, they were compatible, but at the same time, they were just two people who just didn't belong together. Well, I, but I think, you know, everything's dissoluble in alcohol. yeah. And alcohol, you know, all the all the worst mistakes, uh, the worst decisions I ever made were under the influence of alcohol. Mm. And I think both of them, because they both, you know, drank almost to the end of their lives. Yeah. Um, I mean, my mum, mum's life was ruined by it, ruined by it. Her career was destroyed by it. You know, her health was destroyed by it. Um, and I think, you know, so. You know, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, the famous play about the alcoholics? And, I mean, an irony of ironies. Of course, in that play, the man turns out to be gay. And there is, you know, the, the great suspicion is also that my father was at the very least bisexual, which may explain why he had such troubled relationships. And where does this theory come from? Um, well, my sec my stepmother, my father's second wife, said that my father would, you know, the reason why they divorced is because he was always out on the town, um, and he would go home with whoever was closing the bar, male or female, and which, you know, as a son, it kind of freaks you out a bit. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, you know, uh, no objection to gay people, but weird that your dad might be. Well, look, yes, that's something to contend with, I guess. But you mentioned yeah. how you think this may have led to his troubled relationships. So tell us a bit about his reaction to when your mother died. This is in 2005. Um, 
so my mother had died and um, she, you know, and it was a real shock because she'd actually had a stroke five, six years beforehand, which meant that she couldn't really get out of the house unassisted, which meant she couldn't drink anymore and we wouldn't supply her with alcohol. So, I mean, so she was no longer a drunk. She had some brain damage from the, the stroke, but she was no longer drinking. So she tripped over a rug at home and had a twisted knee. was taken to hospital, got the hospital superbug, and died 10 days later. All right. Which was a complete shock to the yeah, system. Yeah, yeah, um, And what was your dad's response to that? Um, my sister and I got this bizarre letter of condolence. It was the only condolence letter we couldn't put in our little book of condolence letters for people to see because it included the extraordinary line, I'm not into hypocrisy and I will shed no tears. Mm. Um, you know, but... Um, th- I, you know, time has made me forget the, the the good times and the not so good times, and I just thought, and I wrote back to him saying, "What, what on earth do you think you're doing? You know, how did your saying that help us with the oceans of tears we are actually shedding?" Yeah, yeah. And I got this, and I got this, and I kind of ripped a strip off him for being so self-centered, and I got this bizarre letter back. Uh, your letter to me uh, revealed an affection for your mother of which I was hitherto unaware. Who uses language like that except sort of you know, country solicitors? <laughs> hitherto unaware. But then he went on to say, in any event, I was annoyed with you that you had not expressed your sympathy to me when I lost my gardening books in a flood. <laughs> so he equated his wet gardening books to my dead mother and i just thought and he said and he, he said I'm, I'm you know i didn't think about her i'm sure she didn't think about me and i i actually replied saying you're the father of her two children there's a picture of the pair of you on the way to the royal garden party in the 1960s done up in your finery on the wall of course she thinks about you what a ridiculous thing to say yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know whether he literally didn't think about people. I mean, he inherited a seven-figure sum from his mum and blew through it in seven years. Wow. And so from the age of 34, my father had been asking me for money <gasps> and I had been giving it to him. He sounds like such a complex character, you know, and yeah, yeah. just so incapable of taking in his children's yeah. feelings. Yeah, yeah. Just were. Well, I mean, Paul, he would not have been broke at the end of his life had he thought, hmm, this big chunk of capital that I've come into, if I look after the capital for my children, I can live a comfortable life and I can pass something yeah. on. Yeah. How, how, how did he end up going through all that money? Um, literally wine, women and songs. Yeah, I mean, right. as in piano bars were part of the story. But it literally was, and, and you know, by, by all accounts, men as well. <laughs> so it was a disaster. <laughs> and they just blew that money away. Yeah, you know? right. I think for him, the money was cursed. Yeah. It had come because he had maintained a relationship with his mother to get this money i mean he was always subsidized by his parents I mean, my dad really didn't have a proper job since 1977 um 
and just I don't know how he lived on off his parents and off his wits. And then he just, but then when he got the money, he just rattled through it. I bet he was everyone's best friend, just yeah. flashing the cash. He was, you know, this. He was a great bar fly. He loves, you know, bar chat, but nothing at depth. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. he, and I think probably, and it might be because of his sexual identity. I mean, an old friend of his, who's an actor, who you know has had sort of small parts in Seinfeld and things like that. Um, they were at school together as well. Um, he said to my stepmother, "I think you know Robert would have been gay, but he didn't want to upset his father." Mm. So Dad, you know, he, had, he struggled a lot. He was the extraordinary thing is he was this big kind of square-shouldered, barrel-chested bloke. Now my, my my mother often said, "My yeah, your father has the head of a Greek god and the body of a Greek shopkeeper." Harsh, <laughs> 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 um, I've got to say, my father had the most stunning blue eyes, long eyelashes, and I think probably the most handsome nose I've ever seen on a human being. And for a man that drank as much as he did, it never showed in his face. <laughs> he loved the arts and, you know, I mean, so, so when that story about sitting at the feet of Noel Coward, if you think of him as, you know, mm. potentially as a gay man, that must have been just fantastic because yeah. there was the queen of all the queens. Yeah, you know, exactly. Being yeah. funny and witty and dry. I mean, Dad was... By the way, you know, when he was on form, the funniest bloke you could ever care to meet. I mean, hysterical. Right. Oh, which makes it especially sad that he felt he had to suppress who he was, either because of the times or his father or his inheritance. Yeah. And the effect that that had on his relationships, especially with his children. He was a pretty awful dad, honestly. Yeah, right. right. He didn't have any of the instincts for it and didn't really know how to talk to us. I mean, both of my parents puzzle me to this day. They're Mm. both... You know, they've mm. been dead. You know, my dad died in 2010, just a, about three days after his birthday. Um, my mum died in 2005, and I think about them every day. Really? How? But in not in a. Oh, I remember that. That was sweet. It's like, what the hell? You know, why were you so mean? <laughs> um, why were you so? You know, why did you say that? Why didn't? Because I look at I look at other people's lives. Who I mean, it's taken me a very long time to find a kind of any form of stability in my life. It's because they gave me zero of the skills you need to, to work kind of with. run yeah. a normal life. You know, neither one of my parents had a regular job. They had this kind of almost a contemptuous attitude for people with day jobs. Yeah. Well, guess what? Yeah. Those people get to buy houses. <laughs> And they both had, I mean, amazingly adventurous lives. And my life has been full of adventure. You know, I've met an extraordinary number of interesting people, some of whom are famous, some of whom are infamous. Yeah, so they inspired me to live an interesting well, that, Yeah, well, in, indeed. But it's been bloody hell. Did it have to be as difficult <laughs> growing up as it was? Cause it's, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, you, you sort of make the most of the cards that you're dealt yeah. and you look at what they did give you and yeah, it's sure. so incredibly unique compared to i mean certainly not stable yeah. and and certainly there are options out there that could have been worse or yeah. at the very least could have been a lot duller it dull i mean you know i do remember one one day these friends my parents friends came over wonderful people uh, they turned up at my ninth birthday from 
uh, a place called, a place called Jackson's of Piccadilly, which was like, um, you know, David James Food Hall, but plus, plus, plus. And they turned up with this bag of delicacies, including quails, eggs, and smoked oysters, and a, a, vi- a magnum of vintage Verve <laughs> for my ninth <laughs> birthday. <laughs> and we had this kind of, you know, feast, and I said can't we just do something ordinary just once like have a picnic in a lay-by like ordinary people <laughs> these people were vastly entertaining and completely mental yeah but see look on, honestly i think you've got to pick your memories you know yeah. because i mean that that's just so wonderful and to not have had that in your past yeah would have changed you as a person so completely. I find it incredibly amusing, and I think I'm, I'm sorry, but I, I do. And I think, yeah. and I think if that's one thing that you've got out of those mental people, yeah. is an ability to make people laugh. Yeah. And uh, my best because, it, yeah, yeah, I mean it is ridiculous. Uh, everybody laughs when they hear that story about comparing my dead mum to his wet gardening books because there's no other appropriate reaction i mean i've never laughed about it but i'm expecting people to laugh because it's mental (laughs) and actually i mean do you know what i love about that story do you know what i love about it so much i love the fact that you can forgive people for in the in the heat of the moment, saying something that they regret. Oh yeah. But he wrote it, and then he folded it up. He put it in an envelope. He put it in a stamp. He's like, "Oh, what's David's address?" And he went and got a book, and he found out your address, and then he took it oh, to the post yeah. office, and he posted it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh wait, there's even there's a, a kicker to this, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, what he said was his emotional response was, "I feel thoroughly upbraided." Oh. Upbraided. Which is, a, you know, an obscure nineteenth-century word for "told off." <laughs> I'll spell it: U P B R A I T E D. Who uses language like that? So he, yes, he definitely thought it through before he sent it. <laughs> he, actually, he may have even gone letter, to the thesaurus. <laughs> that letter was um, the thing that that letter did. Was it actually freed me? It freed me from keeping trying to have a relationship with a man who was incapable. I mean, there's a bit missing. I don't know whether he drank it away or suppressed it, but there's a, I realized anybody that could say that something that spectacularly inappropriate must have a piece missing. Yeah. There was nothing you could do. No. And you know, so if I want to, uh, use it helpfully, I can say, well, I get it. You know, I get it. So I must mean I'm in a better shape. Mm. You know, uh, I, I definitely would never have said anything that's fantastically stupid mm. Mm. to anybody, mm. you know. Let, let, um, let alone written it down and posted. Yeah, written it down <laughs> thought about it, you know. You know, yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, so... Honestly, David. Hey, well, listen, look, I'm glad that it it did have that uh, cathartic moment for you and there was that moment of realisation that, you know, this is beyond uh, anything I can do and it's got absolutely nothing to do with me and perhaps everything to do with him. (laughs) 
yeah, yeah. It's not you, it's me. No, it really is you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, hey, listen, thank you so much for, for talking to us today. It's been just so... Uh, I'm embarrassed to say it's been entertaining because I actually feel, yeah, well, no. I feel like that's not very helpful for you. But um, I hope you enjoyed this episode of My Fucked Up Family enough to subscribe, share or like. And remember, if you have your own fucked up family story you'd like to share, contact us through our Facebook page.